Reading this evening, we read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 through 25. As obedient children, not conducting yourselves to the former lust, as in your, in, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's works, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you are purified, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with pure with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the fl- its flat flower fa- falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Good evening, church. Good to be with you today. Um, we're going to step back into part number two of the series that we just started last week out of the book of 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to just be in 1 Peter. And as we make our way through this, um, October, November, and December, we will read every verse and work our way through our best shot at understanding what Peter's trying to get at when he's writing to these Christians and hopefully um, encourage us as well. So the series that we're doing um, comes from the very first line in which Peter introduces the book when he calls the Christians there elect exiles, which is a very intentional phrase by the apostles saying that we are the elect of God, the chosen of God, but we're also exiles, which was a very common cultural term for uh, them to use in the first century in that world to describe somebody who had moved from somewhere to some new place who was going to live and dwell and work and maybe even mingle in the community in which they were now living, but they weren't from there and then most likely weren't going to stay there the rest of their life. They were just exiles. They were, um, a better phrase might be rendered, they were resident aliens or strangers in that place. And so that's who we are as Christians. And as we're walking through this um, book, what we're trying to look at is, how do we navigate life as Christians in a culture that is increasingly becoming less and less Christian, or should I say maybe it's decreasing in its Christian influence in our culture. And so Peter was writing to a culture that was incredibly similar to ours. Um, He was writing to people that were the minority on moral issues, the minority on social issues. He was writing to people that were facing um, shame and facing um, uh, intimidation and fear and all those different things. Facing people that were, or writing to people that were facing exclusion from the normal society. He was writing to people who were not the norm in culture anymore. In fact, Christians in the first century weren't ever really the norm. And as that's the, what we're beginning to experience definitely in our culture today is Christianity is 
decreasing itself as it is not the norm anymore. And so we're asking, how do we navigate in this culture? And so as these elect exiles, just like the ones in the first century, we will suffer in a culture that doesn't share our worldview, the way that we see the world, the way that we see the problems of the world, the way that we see the answers of the world. And this culture is not just seeing Christianity as strange or different, but increasingly the culture is finding Christianity offensive, that it's um, norms, that it's moral regulations, that it's um, guidance, that it's answers are not just weird or different, but they're actually offensive. And you and I most certainly will face some measure of suffering for that as we hold on to our faith. And so as we said last week, last week, the foundation on which every Christian has to stand if they are going to engage into a culture that is not Christian is the foundation of hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, Christians must have a living hope in them. In 1 Peter there, he says that we must have born within us a living and abiding hope in what's to come. And so that's really what the Christian hope is all about, that we have, that we are fully convinced that we are on our way to a perfect place and we will become someday the perfect being that we always wanted to be. This is the promise of the Christian faith. This is the hope that we abide in. And it's our certainty regarding this that we have seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, in Peter's introduction, when he calls them elect exiles, he doesn't just speak to them and giving them an identity when he says, you're elect exiles. He also, in verse 2, describes their mission or their goal, the object of salvation, you might say. If you look in verse 2, when he says that they are according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with His blood. You see what Peter is doing here when he says that you and I are elect exiles of the dispersion, that we are chosen of God but strangers in the world, He's not just defining your identity, he's also giving you the objective. He's saying that this plan was foreknown by God, carried out, sanctified by the Spirit, but ultimately it has a purpose. You being an elect exile of God has a purpose. He says it's for the obedience to Jesus Christ. What we're going to learn tonight is that salvation is for us, that we might become obedient again to Jesus Christ. So our foundation is hope that cannot be shaken, but our aim or our objective is that we might become people that are obedient. So tonight, part two is our call, not our foundation is hope, that's part one. Part two is our call is that we must become obedient people as we walk through a non-Christian culture. Um, tonight I want to do a couple things. First of all, I want to define obedience a little bit clearer for you. I want to make sure we understand that. And then we'll get into our text that really gives us what Christian obedience is about. And so when you think about obedience, if you're like me, um, maybe it's just the, the, the boy rebel in me that grew up that was a little bit mischievous. Whenever I thought about obedience, I often thought about beaten into submission against my will, doing what you're supposed to do, even if you don't want to do it. That, that's usually how I frame the idea of obedience. Well, the Bible doesn't really define obedience that way. In fact, it wouldn't even point you in that direction. The word obedience just means to position yourself beneath and listen. It's two words in the Greek. It means to come underneath something 
and then also to hear. It means just to bring yourself underneath something and then to listen to that thing that you brought yourself underneath. It's humility. It's listening. It's following. The other thing that's interesting about obedience is that there's a high premium in the New Testament, especially, in fact, in the whole Bible, regarding the idea of obedience. So much so that Jesus would say when his own mother and siblings came to him wanting to speak with him, he said, people that hear the word of God and obey the word of God, those people are my family. That's the premium that Jesus Christ placed upon obedience. And so obedience has a high premium. It means that we place ourselves under something and we listen to it. And the third thing I want to point out about obedience is this. There's sort of this illusion or this lie that revolves in our world about obedience that the opposite of obedience is independence. There's this concept that kind of floats around in people's minds that you either can be obedient to somebody or you can reject obedience and just stand independent. I don't listen to anybody. I'm not under anybody. I'm a grown-up now. I don't have to listen to anybody, and so I'm an independent person. The Bible doesn't portray our nature that way at all. In fact, the Bible says it's not a matter of obedience and independence. Independence is not the opposite of obedience. The opposite of obedience is disobedience to God. You see, here's how the Bible presents obedience. The Bible presents it this way, that every human being obeys something. By our very nature, we are obedient people. You are obeying something. In Romans 6, Paul said it this way. He said, to whom we present ourselves to obey, to that being we are slaves to obey. Whether it's to sin leading to death or to God that leads to life. We are going to present ourselves to something to be obedient to that something. You are right now positioning yourself under something and listening to something and obeying something. And that thing that you're positioning yourself under is the thing that you believe has promised you the greatest hope and the greatest future. And the Christian hope, the distinct message of the gospel, awakens us to the reality that we ought to be positioning ourselves under God and listening to Him that's for our highest good. That's the concept of obedience. That none of us are free from being obedient to anything. In fact, we're obedient to something always. The question is, what am I obedient to? And so as you think about that, our text is going to do three things for us tonight. As it calls us to return the obedience that we're giving to something back to God. That's the premise of what we're going to talk about tonight. That you are obedient to something and the call of Christianity is that you would return that obedience that you're giving to something, return that back to God. And so here's, the, here's what our text is going to do for us to help us learn how to have that kind of Christian obedience back to God. It's going to show us the origin of that obedience, where that obedience comes from, how we can get that. It's going to show us the operation of that obedience, what that obedience actually functions in our life like, and ultimately the outcome or the result of what this Christian obedience does for us. So let's, let's jump headfirst into this. In verse 13, he reveals very clearly the origin of Christian obedience, the origin of positioning yourself under, the, under God to listen and follow Him. He says the origin is this in verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action, that's obedience, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace 
that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The origin of all obedience is sober-minded hope. You might say it this way. You obey that which gives you the most hope. You are always obeying something. And the thing that is giving you the most belief, the most hope, the most promise for a future is the thing that you are listening to, following, and obeying. Your hope is always driving your obedience. Hope always drives obedience. In fact, hope drives your faith. Um, Hebrews 11 says, faith is the substance of what you hope for. So the thing that you hope for is what's going to drive your belief. It's what's going to drive your faith. It's ultimately going to drive your obedience. So what you hope for drives your obedience. So if you want to change your life, you look at yourself and say, I'm just obedient to the flesh or I'm obedient to certain things that I'm not happy about. I'm frustrated with that. If you want to change that, you don't just white knuckle and do behavior differently. You've got to change your hope. So as your hope goes, your obedience goes. And Peter presents the Christian hope as the ultimate desire that everyone, every person in humanity is longing for. That we would have a perfect objective place and that we would become perfect people. That's the Christian hope. And if we have that, we will position ourselves under God to obey Him. But the Christian hope is not like any other hope in the world. You know, we operate by hope in a lot of different ways. The Christian hope is not like any other hope in the world because of this. The Christian hope is presented as an absolute certainty that it will take place. You know, every other hope that you have in this life has a lot of variables to it that you can't guarantee that will actually happen. Uh, you might hope for certain things. You might hope for a particular job or a house or a career or a family or something you might long for. And there are variables inside of that hope that you cannot control, that you cannot guarantee that will happen. The Christian hope is the only hope that is presented to you as an absolute certainty. It's not an if, it's a when. And we live for lesser hopes because we have not critically thought about the Christian hope. You and I are subject to being swayed by lesser hopes in this world because we don't critically think about the offer of the Christian hope and really ask ourselves, do we believe that this is real and it will happen? So the Christian hope is a sober-minded hope. The reason I said sober-minded is that the Christian hope is a thoughtful hope. It's a realistic hope. It's a rational hope. It's not some illusion. It's not some pie in the sky. It's not some nebulous sort of opiate of the masses as people have described religion before that it just makes people feel better because they're just sad or depressed about their life. So you turn to religion to kind of alleviate those pains. The Christian hope is a sober-minded hope. It's based on and in reality, ultimate reality. It is not an illusion. It is sober, it is right-minded, and it's realistic. You see, sobriety, the, 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 the language that Peter's using here in verse 13, he's using the word sobriety, and you might think just in the physical sense what makes sense, but sobriety in general is the mark of a person who has hope. Now picture somebody at your workplace who has maybe a promising future. Maybe the boss has come to him and said, hey, I really like what I see out of you. I see a promotion in your future. When that person has a hope in front of them at their job, does that person become more focused? 
maybe works harder, wants to do better, doesn't have time to mess around with the, you know, the, the, the low lives that are just messing around at work anymore. He can't, can't mess around. We got to get serious, right? Or you go to a sports team and, the, and a person says, the coach comes and says, hey, you got a chance to play varsity this year. And it's summer workouts. Does that kid all of a sudden say, ah, let's just go mess around? If he does, he doesn't have a hope. The, mo- the more clearer and certain your hope is, the more sober mind you become. When I was a kid, I loved playing basketball. I'd play like eight, ten hours a day. I'd leave in the morning, go play at the playground and come home for dinner and play, pick up basketball one-on-one with my brother in the backyard till like 150. You know, we'd just go and be like 87 to 70 and someone would throw the ball at the other and we'd quit. But anyway, um, but I loved playing basketball. My dad would always say, you got to do this drill and you should practice this way. And I'd be like, okay, dad, and just keep playing. And then one summer, I went to a, a camp where two NBA basketball players came. And these guys, I had watched on TV play basketball. And also, I've, I've seen that they were good. And they said, here are some drills you should do. And they showed me how to do those drills. And I remember after leaving that camp, I came home. And all of a sudden, I just didn't have time for, like, stupid horse games. And I didn't have time to, like, just play a one-on-one with my brother. I had to practice. I had drills to do. All of a sudden, I had some sobriety in my life. Why? Because there was a hope in front of me. The Christian hope is a sober-minded hope. The gospel message presents to mankind the ultimate sobriety, that you and I were lost sinners, and a loving God came in spite of that to save us. That should sober us up to the reality of the world. And when you believe this, This gives you an ultimate hope of what's going to come. And the hope of God is both objective and subjective. It's known in truth that Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and it's experienced in your life that you have been raised also to walk with Him. And as your hope grows in this, your obedience will naturally grow. So if you want your obedience to grow in Jesus Christ, cultivate your hope. And that's the origin of Christian obedience. So if that's what obedience, that's how we grow obedience, what's the purpose of it, right? Why does God want us to obey? Look in verses 14 through 17. You'll see a great text here. As I mentioned before, there's no such thing as complete independence. We're always obeying something or someone, always. And the message of the gospel awakens us to the reality that our sin is obedience to a voice other than God's. That's what sin is. And God came to redeem us from that. And it begins to work in us the objective of obedience. And that is to transfer back to God the obedience that we're giving to something else that is not God. When God calls for your obedience... What he's trying to do is transfer back all of the allegiance, the trust, the hope, and the following that you were supposed to be doing with him that you're giving to somebody else right now back to him. That's the purpose. Our obedience is transferred in two ways that the text shows us. It's transferred in who we hear and who we fear. Look at what he says about who we hear. Look in verse 14. He says, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now look down in verse 18. He says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You see, he's saying, Don't be conformed to the passions that you had 
that were born out of ignorance. Look in verse 14. He says, don't conform yourself anymore. Don't obey the passions that you had that came from ignorance. You had ignorance. You had a former life. You had time in which you didn't understand divine truths from God, divine realities. And out of the ignorance, you had obedience to that. And he's saying, don't obey the passions that came from your knowledge before you understood God. Now that the gospel has come, it's hopefully taught you divine realities that should waken you to not obey former ignorance. Or he says in verse 18 that we've been ransomed or bought back from the feudal ways. That means vain or empty ways that we used to live that we actually inherited from our forefathers. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ sears off our past. Even the things that we learn so that we might become more like God in this obedience. And so we've got to think about transferring who we listen to. These previous ways were operating without any awareness of the divine reality of the world. That's how these previous ways operate. You operate in sin because you're not taking into account the reality of the world, the reality of the hope of God. And so we must realize that we will always be listening to someone, always. And the question is, who do you listen to? And the reality of Jesus Christ must begin the process of transferring back trust and listening to God. He should be the greatest demonstration that you can trust what God has to say. And you should begin to listen to Him. So who we hear needs to be transferred, and ultimately who we fear. Look in verse 17. Really interesting interjection here, what Peter says. He says, that, and if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each, one deed, each one's deeds, conduct or obey, conduct yourselves with fear, Throughout the time of your exile, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, he, I don't believe he's talking about this terrorizing, shaking of my boots, scared to death to approach kind of fear. What he's talking about is, who do you revere? Whose approval do you live for? Whose um, words do you hunger for? Who do you long to see and to know? Who do you fear? We all fear somebody. We, we bring ourselves under somebody. And so he says, we obey constantly out of fear. And usually it's, it's a kind of a bad kind of fear. Fear drives our disobedience to God because it calls for our obedience to sin. In fact, there's this new, um, how many of you guys have heard of the, the, the phrase FOMO? Anybody have heard of FOMO, F-O-M-O? Call yours, you've got teen daughters, right? You know what that is. Anybody else know what FOMO is? Matt, Monica, you guys got this one? All right. FOMO is this new thing, like, like because of Facebook and Twitter and all this stuff, it's fear of missing out. That, that, that kids are literally experiencing emotional distress over FOMO, which is like, I'm at home right now with my parents, and something's going on, and I wasn't invited to that because I know that because I saw it on Facebook or Twitter or any other Instagram, something else. It's called FOMO. Gabe, you're like, I've never had it before, right? <laughs> Just kidding. So think about how fear operates in that. Fear constant is working. How about our fear of being excluded? Doesn't that drive our behavior sometimes? Fear of being left out? How about fear of being ridiculed? Fear of being mocked? Do you see how fear drives our sinful behaviors? In fact, you can trace fear back to the root of why you lie. You always lie because you're afraid of something. Always. 
You can draw the root back of fear to why you slander people, why we talk bad about people. You do that because either you're afraid that they haven't accepted you, so you need to knock them down, or you're afraid that they might be more accepted in the eyes of somebody, so you've got to slander that person to, to raise your status. You're afraid of your status not being high enough. Fear is traced back to even the roots of greed when you're afraid that God won't provide for you. In fact, when he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, that's in the context of don't worry about the money that you have. That's what the verse says. I'll never leave you. You see, the gospel sets right our fear compass. You won't escape the concept of revering something, fearing something. What the gospel does is it sets right the compass of what you should fear. The one who judges impartially the entire world according to a deeds. And we can stand and call that one judge Father because of the gospel and not fear his judgment, but fear him in obedience. And so the result of our obedience is transferring back to God that we hear him and that we fear him and that we begin to obey him. And the result of this is that you reflect him. You see, Peter actually tells us about a spiritual principle in verse 16. He says, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is quoted from a few places in Leviticus, 19.2 is one, where um, God says, be holy because I am holy. And what's interesting is the way that Peter writes this is he changes at the beginning there. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. He actually is saying that there is going to be a time for the people of God when, when they will become exactly as God is. You shall be holy as I am holy. And the process of obedience is the sanctification process of becoming holy. You're, you're joining that process. But the principle is this, that you always end up looking like the God that you serve. You always do. And so as you bring yourself under the hope of God and the outcome of God and His obedience and fearing and listening to Him, you will end up looking like Him ultimately. And so that's a beautiful opportunity for us that we can learn to look like God, trust the goodness of God as our Father, and hope for what He has in store for us, and we will become more like Him wholly. And so let's look at this last part and we'll be done. The outcome of our faith. So we've seen the origin that we've got to have a hope in God and what He's promised us that produces obedience to Him. We've got to understand the objective that it would transfer back current obedience to things that are not God to God. And the outcome is this, that we become holy. But look how he describes this. This is an important question for you to think about. We're going to be down in verse 22 in a minute. What is the ultimate outcome of your current obedience? Like the thing that you're hoping for, the thing that you're trusting, the thing that you're fearing the way you're living your life, what's the ultimate outcome of the thing that you long for most? Where is it leading you? And what Peter refers us to here is verse 22 is that we have one outcome and there's one purpose. Look at the outcome in verse 22. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. You see the outcome? A purified soul. Now, this is kind of wrapped in just a lot of church language, purified soul. Like the word soul we use a lot, and the word purified we use a lot. But if you dig into what Peter's getting at here, it's really beautiful. See, for the Hebrews, especially for the Jews in that day, the word soul meant the center of a person. 
his, where, where a person's will, where his heart, where his mind was, where it all came together, what drove that person, what his ultimate desires were. And so when he says your soul gets purified, what he's saying is the center of you gets restored back to the way that it was always supposed to be. That word purified means like it doesn't have anything else mixed in it other than what it was supposed to be. The condition that we live in now in this waiting for this purification state, but we're still struggling in sin is a mixture. There's partly true who we are without sin and there's partly a wrestling still with sin. And so he says that we have a purified soul, that everything is going to be set right back to the way it was supposed to be. The center of us will become pure, no guile, no second guessing our own intentions, no living out of manipulation of people. The outside of us will start to match the inside of us because it will be so pure and so beautiful. In fact, when we reach this place where the outcome of our obedience is a purified soul, we'll be living in a life where there's no hiding and there's no pretending. There's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, it'll be Genesis chapter 2 when he said they were naked and unashamed. Nothing to hide from. That is the ultimate outcome of your obedience. In fact, John said it this way. He says, brethren, we don't know what we're going to be like when he comes, but we know that when he does come, we are going to be like him. And he who has this hope in him purifies himself. That excites me. I don't know how you feel about that, but, but as I think about hungering for the purified version of me, that there's still something in me that I haven't even yet discovered, that there's a truth in my soul that is still mixed with sin that I just want to be out of my life, and the promise of God that if I'll drive into obedience, that I'm going to become a purified soul, that I'm going to learn who I really am supposed to be, that makes me long for that day when we're going to have that perfect place and that perfect state to dwell with God. And finally, he says, the outcome of this, a purified soul has a purified purpose. Look at the purpose. He says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The purpose of all this, that we might have a hope someday, that we might become obedient people to God, trusting Him and following Him, is that you and I would become purified souls that know how to have a brotherly love that fervently loves. His language is cool here. He says, first, we've got to have a brotherly love. That means a family love. This is the word Philadelphia, a family intimacy, a love and a care for each other. And then out of that family love, he says, love one another fervently. And he switches the word. He goes from brotherly love, family, Philadelphia, to agape, covenant love. So inside of this family of affection that we care for each other, we don't stop there. In fact, in this place where we care about each other, we go the next step and say, I'm covenant to you. I love you fervently. In fact, the same word that Jesus used when he prayed fervently in the garden, he says that's how we're supposed to love each other, to be stretched to cover all areas. That kind of love. This is our original design. True sacrificial love where we are so full of love from God that we have no fear to love others even at the cost to ourselves. That's how you were always meant to live. In fact, that's why sacrificial true love is still the most powerful draw to the movie theaters and the most powerful draw in music today. 
sacrificial love always trumps all box office. Why? Because you were designed to love in an agape form. And something has sold us, and something has told us that we're not supposed to love like that anymore. To be holy is to be like God. And you know that's incredibly simple. It's not complex. It's not this huge list of rules that you've got to follow. It's not this huge, confusing thing you've got to figure out. In fact, to be like God is to covenantly love people and God. And out of that framework, you live your entire life. And that's pretty simple, really. As we continue to live in a less and less Christian culture, our family love for each other here, and then our covenant love for each other and our love for humanity will be the most powerful and the most clear testimony of Jesus Christ. Especially as the world continues to disagree with us on moral precepts, we won't win the battle of moral ideology with people if they don't look to Jesus and say, I believe He's actually God. They won't believe what we believe. But when they look at us and they see a brotherly love in here and a covenantal love that cannot be broken, that will be the testimony to a non-Christian culture that the hope of God is still alive in the world. But the problem is this won't be forced upon anybody. You see, brotherly love that produces covenant love, where we care about each other, even to the point of sacrifice, does not come because it's pressed on us. It comes because we're willing to place our hope in God and have obedience to Him, to follow Him. So how do we develop this kind of love? Peter concludes with this word right here. He says that we get it down in verse 23. Being born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word. Peter has some really interesting language here. You see, if Peter meant that we were just supposed to have words on a page, he would have said the same thing he said in verse 16 about be holy as I am holy. Because in verse 16, he was quoting an Old Testament passage when he said, it is written. That was the phrase that he was using to say it was written in Scripture. But here he says something even further. He says, we're going to be born into this by a living and abiding word. I believe he's playing off the language of the Logos that John would use in his gospel when he said the word was God and the word became flesh. And he says two words to describe this. He says this word is living and it's abiding. Who does Peter know that is still living and that continues to abide with him? You see, he knew the one who was once dead, the one that hung on a cross. He knew the one that was God in the flesh that came. He knew the one who knew us as sinners and yet still came because he loved us who determined for us that we would have a better hope, a better future, a hope for this perfected place and a perfected us. And he knew the one who would come and sacrifice himself so we could be made right to a holy God that we have left. He knew that one who was called the Logos, the Word. And in this process, this one Jesus proved to each of us that his voice, that his words, that his mouth could be trusted could be believed, could be obeyed. You see, Jesus, even in the garden, had a hope in what God promised for him. He had a trust in what God said, and out of that hope and out of that trust, even in the garden, Jesus obeyed to the point of his suffering. And as he says in verse 24, or 25, 
the very last phrase, and this word, not just the letters on your page, but this word, this Jesus, is the good news that's preached to you. You've got to look deeply into this word, this one Jesus Christ, and see not only the message of your sin, which is so true, that should sober you, but the message of his love, that he would come and he would die for you to give you not just an escape from hell, but a better hope. And when you grow in that better hope, you'll have an obedience that works the process of transferring yourself out of obeying sinful things back to obeying God and ultimately working the highest objective of God that you would become holy so that we could love not only God but each other and the greatest witness and testimony to the world. That's the offer always standing, but most certainly tonight. You can come as we stand and sing.